And there we go. I believe that I'm live for a half hour late rail natter. Hello, everyone. Good evening. Oh, my goodness. You're all here. People are asking if I use tea bags. Um, uh, yes, I do in, in, in most instances. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I use loose leaf. Mostly I use tea bags. I have a nice, in fact, let's immediately go big face. Uh, where I can grovelly, grovelingly apologise to you. Uh, having a nice, appropriately um, mugged uh, regional railways. Um, cup of Assam at the moment. Hmm. Very nice. <sighs> Marvellous. Um, welcome. This is it's the first solo episode of 20... Oh, crikey, the colour. I've got different got different LEDs that haven't quite worked properly that I need to fix. I'm still looking very jaundiced and green. Anyway, um, let's get on with it, shall we? It's episode 148 of uh, of Rail Natter. It's the first solo episode of 2023. Uh, we're very nearly at 150 episodes, so golly to that. Um, tonight we are talking about every uh, asterisk way that the Railways Act 1993 has resulted in today's mess. So this is going to be a brief history. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll talk more about what this episode is going to do later. But suffice to say, this is going to be the first in a, in a few different episodes pick, unpicking this uh the calamity that was the Railways Act 1993. Uh, a few different episodes picking it up. Hopefully we'll get some guests in to talk, to, to give some different perspectives, but I'm going to give mine tonight, uh, and um, hopefully it will be interesting. It's not going to be a detailed, detailed history, but it's going to pick up the interesting stuff that um, that explains how everything fits together and results in um, the mess we have today, because there are direct threads that lead right through to it. Uh, and this is going to be an episode where I have uh, a rare situation where I'm reading up. Well, okay, I- I'm trying to get ahead of myself. No, let's get on with it. Uh, everyone who is in here in the chat, um, all of you here, uh, hello to everyone. Um, welcome to tonight's Rail Matter. go uh that was the intercity 225 fading away um yeah this <laughs> evening everyone this is um so this 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 rail matter is based essentially off a piece uh, that's currently been published through the ippr's uh journal progressive review um where i have kind of summarized the um the they're kind of a, a summarized history of the privatized railway because we're kind of reaching well, the, the the it won't die, but we have reached the end of this pr- chapter in the history of our railways. Um, it's just that the end is continu- We've only reached the beginning of the end, not the end of the end. Um, hello, uh, Detour. Hello, everyone in the chat. Um, so, uh, if you want to, if you have, a- if you're an academic and you have access to the piece, uh, I can pop a link in the description. You can go and have a read of it. I think. Um, but if you're not, it's not an open access one. Um, I need to work out exactly to what extent Wiley will get upset. If I post a longer version of the article, uh, about 800 words longer, on Medium. But because it's through Wiley, and any academics in here, Deidre is one I know is here, any academics here will know the extent to which um, uh, this, uh, the, 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 the academic bloody things and Wiley are, are a bit nasty when it comes to them being shifty and blocking papers from being published so they, to the point where they might get angry at the IPPR if I publish mine. Anyway, whatever. Uh, I'll get over that and, and provide a, a source of pirating it um, in some easy way soon. 
slash making a link to the PDF. Um, anyway, uh, so uh, this is what we're going to be basing it on. Uh, this this story, this, this tale is going to be weaved through. Uh, kind of, I, I pulled this together, uh, and it and, and I didn't it, when I started writing this. Uh, let's make my little face appear in the top corner. Hello, here I am. When I started writing this, I didn't expect it to stitch together as as neatly into the narrative. Of, oh yeah, this is why everything's screwed up uh, as it did. Um, so yes, we. We, we will press on uh, and I'm going to try and keep this to an hour because I've already taken up half an hour of your time by being late um, so let us crack on hello to everyone listening in audio only format by the way this should work quite well in audio only format frankly so we begin we begin before the Railways Act 1993 because it's worth surveying the terrain a little bit what was going on um, uh, you know what was going on in the background, what was going on in the railways in in, in, in 1990? Well, um, and indeed, what's the kind of context for this? Why is it important for us to kind of think back on that on, on the railways at 1993? Well, because of the mess that everything is in. So that mess that everything is in, um, uh, which I kind of highlighted in, in my piece, um, that mess that everything is in. Well, Britain's railways are kind of arguably at their lowest ebb since since the early 1960s. You know, you, you could, could pretty much frame it that way. And, and, you know, we've got more trains being cancelled than any time um, in the industry's recent history. Um, we have, uh, yeah, we've got, um, you know, more, uh, the timetables of key operators uh, kind of providing, what, like a, th a third fewer services, in some cases even worse than that, half the services than than, than um, uh, pre-COVID. Uh, things are worse now than at the time of the May 2018 timetable meltdown. And it's worth remembering, as and I'll, I'll repoint this out later, nothing has changed since the May 2018 timetable, not a single thing, um, or you know, no no new stuff, no changes have been made that were recommended off the back of May 2018. So, um, but 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 the key point is that this isn't solely a calamity of this current government's doing, or even the kind of previous iterations of it. And so we to understand kind of why things have got so bad, why there are so many, uh, there's so much industrial action, why the timetables are a mess. We kind of have to understand um, how the current industry has has developed, where it came from. Um, and that kind of dates back before the Railways Act um, kind of completely disintegrated BR. So let's jump back to 1990. And things were actually, you know, we had British Rail. Things were actually looking pretty pretty good for British Railways. Um, ridership had been climbing pretty solidly since. In fact, I've got graphs. Uh, I've got graphs that are in a different order to the ones that I've got on here. Let me just schwiz in here. Oh, actually, yeah. Um, when I say British Rail, I actually don't just mean British Rail because really the railways were operating as bits already. It was unified, but you had, in terms of pass the passenger railway, you had three very strong brands. One of them's on my mug. Uh, here it is in the top corner. Uh, you had Intercity, of course, Swallow, wonderful. Network Southeast, toothpaste, very popular. Regional railways, um, less popular, but actually very good. This isn't the way I would have sectorized British Rail, by the way, but this was the way it was done, and it was very, very successful, frankly. It was very good. And at the bottom, my little dots and bits, uh, apart from Freightliner, because uh, Freightliner's original BR logo is quite hard to locate but anyway uh, i could have remade it but anyway uh, the, the, all the freight sectors of which there were five or six no seven actually there were seven if you if you count the fact that rail freight distribution actually no not rail freight the the one of them was split into four the the, the three da, 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 yeah the rail freight was a little bit complicated under br but it, again it worked pretty well uh fine um no the slides are in the right order i just forgot the order i was putting them in uh so BR in kind of this this form. So, but but these were all interconnected. There were there were 
you know, government was increasingly trying to create commercial boundaries between them. And, and to some extent, there were some challenges in the relationship between the three passenger organisations and, and freight. Um, you could argue that it was over-prioritising the passenger railway over the freight railway. But there were... But it was very much still, you know, it was very much still BR. So, um, yeah, uh, you know, the, the branch had been, cl- had been climbing. Let's get the old whack out Let's get the old whack out because I want to scribble on things. The, uh, yeah, branch had been climbing pretty solidly since um, since the mid-80s. Uh, there you are, you can see up to this point, kind of climbing um, up to 1990. There'd been a bit of a dip but, but it wasn't bad. You know, ridership was very much on the up and up. And in terms of subsidies, you know, it, people talk about BR as being inefficient. Those people are simply lying or they are horribly misinformed because British Rail was, um, you know, the average subsidy was, a, was, was as low, kind of, um, kind of in, the, in, the, in the late 80s, subsidy was as low as 20% of running costs. Now, you might go, well, it spiked. Well, it spiked in the same way that it spiked during COVID because ridership dropped because there was a big recession. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. So, uh, subsidy was as low as 20% of running costs, which made BR one of, if not the most efficient um, system in Europe, railway system in Europe, like genuinely world, as a, a phrase we all hate, world beating. Um, we had a, a pretty good railway system. Um yeah, and, you know, there are other things going on. So, so, so you know, Thameslink, uh, and this this will all sound familiar, folks, uh, to you. Um, Thameslink uh, had just been opened. Uh, it's providing the first high capacity suburban rail link through London, um, uh, and uh, and cross rail planning was kind of fairly well advanced. That uh, you had um, uh, actually, yeah, you, you kind of got trans. Uh, you've got um, you know plans for high, new high speed rail links um, between the Channel Tunnel under King's Cross and then out towards the north uh, of England um, and beyond. So, so there are you know, plans for a high-speed rail network and, and kind of uh, improve, massive improvements in journey times into Europe. And you had, um, you had the Trans-Pennine route upgrade um, was being developed. So then electrification across the Pennines. Hmm, all of this sounding somewhat familiar, am I right? Yes. Anyway, so um, this, was, this was fine. Then... Uh, oh yeah, by the way, if you want an update of, of kind of how optimistic things were looking in in 1990, then then I strongly recommend that you um, uh, Google uh, Future Rail the next decade. Um, it's on the Railways Archive. It's an interesting little document to read through. I sadly don't have a copy of it. I've got the kind of the, the equivalent version of it from from 1980 or from 1979, which is behind me down here. But um, uh, this is well worth a read. Um, so 1991, and and bad things happened, and I don't just mean uh, a miniaturized me. Um, appearing in 1991. No, actual bad things happened. And um, what happens if your entire economy is run by people who are out of their mind on coke? Uh, the answer is um, you get regular recessions. Hooray! Uh, and indeed, uh, we had an enormous uh, recession uh, at the end of the 1980s into the early 1990s. Um, and uh, as a result of this, um, well, we'd unlike kind of the more recent recession where we'd had um, you know, a decade of things kind of, of public services kind of being restitched back together a bit. Maybe not as much as, you know, not, not as much in the way that we like, but undeniably public services are being invested in through the new labour years. Um, racism is also being invested in, but that's another story. Um, but through the 1980s, um, not so much the case. And in fact, we'd basically been borrowing our way into economic prosperity by selling everything. We'd been selling all the uh, all the family heirlooms 
Um, and actually, if you could see what happened, so you can see um, through the 1980s where this, this nominal GDP growth is just from us selling things and discovering oil. Um, but ridership was rising. So, you know, the daily rail uh, distance traveled per capita. So the amount that people were individually traveling by train uh, kind of on average was increasing. Um, then we got the, uh, the a pretty deep recession and uh, and ridership started dropping again. So, you know, ridership had been climbing, in fairness, it had been climbing, um, <laughs> it'd been climbing from 1970 onwards. So BR, even in the late 60s, BR kind of turning things around, then another recession. Then it climbed again, then another recession, and it dropped again. And in fact, at the end of the 80s, you know, the, the, um, the oil crisis and the 1979 recession hit ridership again. Uh, but then again, one from the mid-80s onwards, it was climbing. You know, there's a bigger world out there um, than just the railways in the south. You've got to look at what's happening in the bigger picture of people travelling around and going to work to understand uh, ridership patterns. Um, but yeah, by the mid, you know, from the mid-80s onwards, even from the early 80s, it was uh, very much climbing. Not, uh, early 90s recession or late you know, 89, 90 recession hit that hard um, and ridership dropped. And more than a decade of kind of constrained public spending meant that, that that impact on passenger numbers did make the subsidy jump upwards. And as we saw with COVID, government panicked and the doctrine that had held pretty rigidly of everything but the railways was thrown out of the window and plans for privatisation were kind of put into motion. Uh, this is bad, folks. So, um, what next? What next? Well, bad news. July 1992, um, worse things were happening, for our railways at least, which is that um, a, a white paper called New Opportunities for the Railways was published. Um, now, you might be wondering, who authored this document? Uh, the answer is maybe not the sort of answer you'd like, because the main authors of this report... Uh, were the Adam Smith Institute of 55 Tufton Street. They're nasty right-wing libertarian maniacs. And they were the ones who essentially described the structure that the railways would be turned, you know, would be, uh, or the meat grinder that the railways would be uh, churned in, uh, churned through to turn, to create the new, the new structure. So, um, yeah, uh, this is kind of like these two. Uh, also, this is Treasury. There's, there's lovely Treasury. These two are the authors of that, of that, of that white paper. Um, and, and it, it recommended little less than, a, than you know, I, I would call an atomization of the formerly integrated railway operating structure with the creation, in their mind, the creation of as many independent elements as possible to maximize the perceived opportunities for competition. So in the, you know, if, if you follow the, um, uh, the, the loopy logic of uh, neoliberal libertarian maniacs uh, or vampires, depending on how you want to describe them, uh, people who just don't have your not even your best interests, they don't have your interests at heart in any way whatsoever. They see that the, the smaller the pieces, the more competition, the more um, that you will have a, an efficient, uh, marketized system. Uh, bad news. Uh, it doesn't work. As we've seen relentlessly uh, in practice, it don't work. Um, actually, briefly, and this is this is a bonus thing for you lot, over if you just read the piece, um, there's a little letter here from uh, that was written to... Um, to Margaret Thatcher in 1985 about privatising water. Um, and it's quite interesting. So here's, here's the little note on top of the thing. And then underneath it is is a little sort of um, typed out letter that I think is interesting to... Um, it's interesting to pick out because it picks out why... what the logic behind privatisation was. Uh, all of the privatisation... You know, very few, if not all of the privatisations through the 1980s were... 
bad. They were bad news. They weren't a very good idea. Um, we, the things that are actually fundamental to, you know, take the example of British Telecoms, BT, um, a good example of a thing that should be part of the of the functioning of the state, because internet, as we now know, is a critical part of us of, of us functioning. It's as critical to us being able to to live our lives as as water and electricity, which have both were also privatized and should not have been. Both of which we've also shown should absolutely be within the public sector and managed as a state entity. Uh, because they are vital things for us to live. And the idea that there is real competition is simply for the birds. So um, there's some good things that we can look at. I can't point to this because um, it's on a PDF, not on the, uh, the old PowerPoint. But the bottom sort of paragraph there is saying, water is a good candidate for privatisation because many, though not all, of the water authorities are already in good shape for private ownership, do not need a long period of elaborate restructuring. This is the perception for the railways because the, the sectorization had sort of taken... Um, BR down a bit of a, a, a kind of a corporate structure point. Um, uh, uncritical Simon's pointing out that ASI are um, on Great Smith Street, one road away from Tufton Street. Uh, yeah, they moved. They, they've always been part of the Tufton Street cabal. They're the same. They're they're funded the same way. They're the same organisational structure as um, uh, yeah as um, as as the Taxpayers Alliance and others. Um, uh, the water authorities between them own substantial assets and employ more than 50,000 people, so they will make a big contribution to the privatisation programme. Uh, it's a good example of it has lots of people, which means it'll make the it'll make the number of public sector workers reduce, which was seen just simply ideologically as a good thing. Um, the water authorities say they need to invest in renewing their assets faster than treasury constraints permit. Um, yes, the obvious thing there is, well, loosen those treasury constraints. But no, 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 that, not according to treasury brain. Uh, privatisation would free them from the constraints and allow them to borrow from the private market at higher rates, which they would then charge back to the public sector, uh, back to the taxpayer. It's amazing how much this logic is never followed through. Remarkable stuff. Uh, we have Lynn Baxter on here. Hello, Lynn. Uh, it's an honour to have you on, given your uh, knowledge and understanding of this. I hope I do the subject justice. Um uh, we would not be selling off a national monopoly like BT because the performance of each of the 10 water authorities can be measured against that of the others, introducing an element of competition. Uh, again, just like water companies where I have no choice what water company I choose. Competition is fake. Competition is only therefore created by a, having a regulator that's got teeth. Um, and if you have a regulator that's got teeth, the reality is that there won't really be any competition. They'll just be delivering to the, the lowest common denominator against the contracts delivered by that or delivered by the contract of, contracting authority and managed by the regulator. Hmm, sounds familiar. Oh, yeah, that's right. Railways also. Um, the general advantages of... This is a fun one. The general advantages of privatisation, such as wider share ownership by the public and employees... Why is that an advantage? Removal of state interference... What does that mean? And realisation of assets apply with full force. So all of that ideological gibberish, it doesn't mean anything. Um, so... Uh, all of this stuff, um, all, 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 all that stuff, very familiar to us. But you have to. Some of that's useful to have understand some of that, that brain, the kind of the mentality within government at that time, uh, and why some of the, why privatizations were seen as a, as a good idea ideologically, even though none of the evidence really supported that they were a good idea. Even at that point, it was quite well understood how they it wouldn't be a good idea uh, on a number of um, on a number of measures. So let's return to our adventures through time. Um, so. We also have to think, this is not the start, um, <laughs> thanks Lynn, uh, this is not the start of privatisation, the, the, the Railways Act 1993 was not the start of privatisation. You could argue that privatisation really started, you know, the, the, the divvying off to private entities of bits of British Rail started back in 1969, actually, with the um, the, corp the incorporation uh, under the Companies Act 
of um, British Rail Engineering Limited. That was back in 1969. It was still held underneath BR. So, yes, it was an arm's length company, but it was a national company. But it was the start of that stru- that restructuring into corporate entities. Um, proper nationalisation, uh, sorry, started in 1984. Um, again, Lynn, you can correct me on this one. <laughs> started in 1984 when Sealink was was sold off to ship to, to sea containers. Um, uh, R.I.P. So that was the end of, of ferries that had the BR logo on them, sadly. Uh, but so th- this process had started already, but it, it started in anger in in uh, or rather the the article to begin the process writ large was uh the the railways out 1993 which was uh, which um was uh, assented royally um on the 5th of november 1993 i think um and in on the 1st of uh, here it is oh in fact shall i read this i don't know i will read this it's such a it's such a garbled nonsense uh, an act to provide for the the railways out 1993 an act to provide for the appointment and functions of a rail regulator and a director of passenger rail franchising and of users consultative, consultative committees for the railway industry and for certain ferry services to make new provision with respect to the provision of railway services and the persons by whom they are to be provided or who are to secure their provision to make provision for and in connection with the grant and acquisition of rights over and the disposal of other transfer and vesting of any property rights or liabilities by means of which railway services are or are to be provided to amend the function of the british railways board to make provision with respect to the safety of railways and the protection of railway employees and members of the public from personal injury and other risks arising from the construction or operation of railways to make further provision with respect to transport police to make provision with respect to certain railway pension schemes to make provision in in connection with the payment of grants and subsidies in connection with railways and in connection with the provision of facilities for freight haulage by inland waterway to make a provision in relation to tramways and other guided transport systems and for connected purposes <coughs> there we are the uh, the uh, uh, appropriately titled Railways Act 1993. It did quite a lot of things. Anyway, uh, in any case, on the 1st of April 1994, the Railways Act came into effect and the, um, the demise of British Rail began. Um, so... Uh, this, uh, and this, this was different to previous privatisations in that it was very much a fire sale. Uh, whew, oh, my goodness. Oh, so... Yeah, right, here we go. Um, yeah, Neil Gwynn is pointing out one of the issues is how on earth do you compare like with like? Um, it, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Absolutely, it, it doesn't make any sense. Thanks, thanks, Graham. I am indeed breathing. Um, I know that some people have said Christian Walmart's written well on the subject of, of railway privatisation. I would agree with that for the contextual stuff, but I, I think Christian isn't as good at pulling together exactly why it's made the mess that we have today. Um, Christian's best writing was absolutely at the time of... Um, uh, of when he was in amongst it as a journalist, so had all the right connections and could dig deep into understanding what was going on um, uh, within kind of and, and asking the question of what's the point of all this. Um, I think joining up the dots and bringing it into today's context, um, Christine's not as strong at. Um, uh, so yeah, so so his his writings at the time very good. Um, I'm I, I'm I'm not convinced by the latest BR history book um, necessarily. Uh, anyway, right. So first of April, nineteen ninety four. The first bits, the first private entity to be created uh, as part of this was Railtrack, uh, which took over the rail infrastructure, such as track uh, signals, stations, you know this stuff. So we're going to start with the infrastructure. Oh, I didn't actually put anything there. First of April, nineteen ninety-four, nothing. Yeah, blank, blank sheet of paper. Let's let's, let's say let's say that was planned. So we're going to go through the various bits of railway, right? So the first thing, the infrastructure. Um, so uh, yeah, we had Railtrack. Railtrack was created. Uh, Railtrack was created as a contract management organization because. Railtrack, in theory, wasn't supposed to do anything. It was supposed to be a holding company to hold a bunch of assets, and then, but the but you would have 
seven different infrastructure maintenance units and six track renewal units split off from BR to then um, undertake the kind of the, the maintenance, uh, the operating, uh, generally kind of uh, running the system. So tra- rail track would be a contract management organization and the employer of the signalers. That was essentially its purpose. Um, that was kind of uh, that was kind of the point of, of, of rail track, as envisaged by the the, the vampires. Um, so then, what next? Well, passenger operations. Uh, you know, so um, uh, in terms of the actual passenger operators. Wait a minute. Why have I got that? That's this is this is why well, never to make slides in a rush because you know you never know where it's going to go. Um, uh, is that logical? Oh yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. No, no, that is actually fine. I kind of was doing. Uh, I'm doing what I meant to do. Uh, everything's well. So um, we also then. So so that's the infrastructure. The in terms of the operators. I know there's a bit missing there that you might think, and we'll come back to the trains. But the actual operators were the next kind of thing to start getting. Uh, getting created. Um, actually, that's not true because the freight operators were the next thing to be created. So I'm going to pull those up here. There we are, and, and put this into the right order. Um, yes, good, fine. There. Da, 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 da. So, sorry, the freight operators were the next thing to be created. I knew there was something wrong. Freight operators were the next thing to be created, and um, six freight operators, or is that seven? Freight? No, six freight operators were created. Um, uh, you can see them all there, of which some kind of retained their, their BR identities and, and three were completely new. Mainline load hall and, and Transrail were kind of completely new, but again, they were really spinning out elements of BR. Um, uh, that's not the official Freightliner logo. I kind of had to bodge that one together because I can't find the original Freightliner logo anywhere. It's just not on the internet, which is kind of annoying. Um, so anyway, there we go. All of these were actually ironically... Every single one of those except Freightliner got gobbled up by EWS within a couple of years. But that's another story. So we've got these six freight operating companies. Fine. Passenger operators. They were the next. And we ended up with uh, 25 passenger operating units. Um, so there we go. Quite a lot of... Indiv- and all of these supposedly operating as, as completely autonomous entities, uh, completely separated from each other. Uh, and then kind of from uh, kind of from 1996 onwards, these, these train operating units, as they were called, would then be franchised out as train operating companies. Um, they, we're missing a thing, of course, aren't we? We are missing the trains. Um, uh, so what happened to the trains? Well, this is, I would say, this is probably the most criminal element of, um, of the privatization of the railways because the infrastructure... Um, wasn't really sold off and then made money out of in the same way that the trains were. And these trains had been scrimped and saved for by BR, um, you know, selling off little bits of land here and there to pay for one or two trains um, there, uh, left, right and centre. These were then sold off at rock-bottom prices, an enormous range of hugely valuable trains, um, uh, by three rolling stock operating companies. Here they are, all three rolling stock operating companies. Um, that Those trains were then leased back to train operators, and as they still are today, at eye-watering cost, with very little oversight, um, s- enabling a, a substantial, a, 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 an enormous outflow of cash, a hemorrhaging of cash from the industry. Um, it's little coincidence that these groups were initially run by a consortia of banks, and continue, by the way, to have finances that are funneled via low or zero tax regimes to obfuscate their earnings. Like, th- these earn cash in a way that no one talks about and is absolutely enormous and quite difficult to understand. 
Um, and it's definitely incentivized kind of, well, it's incentivized lots of bad behaviors. But the, the one that's probably the most annoying to, to passengers day to day is the fact that this is incentivizes um, yeah, probably one of the pa kind of British passengers' biggest gripes, which is the common use of trains that are as short as possible to minimize leasing costs without any care for the level of overcrowding that this results in. So rather than having trains that are just the length, the maximum length they can be for the bit of railway they're running on, you go for the train that's the minimum length it can be to satisfy the franchise requirements of how many seats you're allowed to run at minimum, which is clearly absolutely bonkers and has constrained demand enormously, um, despite the fact that people are desperately wanting to travel by train. If that if those restrictions had not been in place, um, then we would have seen growth we would have seen more growth on the railways than we than we did anyway. So, um, and there's another impact of this that's worth talking about. So, um, the Roscoe is landing like this large, cheap asset that they could essentially rent out, you know, rent your economy, rent out at high prices. With the fact that this basically killed off the UK train manufacturing industry. So, if we jump to, uh, you know, we look at 1990, where um, uh, we had quite a few. These, these are kind of the main manufacturers sort of spread around you know glasgow uh you know, birmingham loughborough derby manchester leeds and york um as the main ones there are other bits and pieces going but those are the main kind of uh manufacturers at that point um as a result of you know in the aftermath of privatization only, the only contracts that were kind of being fulfilled at that point were the ones that br still had out so it's br's kind of partially fulfilled orders which remained on the books at that point you know no new passenger trains would be built at volume until the early 2000s so from privatization onwards, there was just a kind of a vacuum of uh, of, of new train manufacturing. So, um, at, you know, so we've seen that that kind of within to kind of within ten years, actually, most of those are closed. By two thousand and five, only Derby remained. Yeah, um, and we've seen new um, plants popping up in Newton Aycliffe. So uh, Newton Aycliffe uh, here. Uh, well, let me get this right about here. And also down in Newport uh, here, um, those two have appeared and are already at risk and under threat again, thanks to the lack of any long-term rolling stock strategy. So, um, yeah, really not, you know, in terms of like the Roscoe's incentivized some of the worst behaviors, make most of the cash disappear and destroyed our domestic train manufacturing industry. Oof, not good, really. Not good. Um uh, oh, Deirdre is pointing out a very key point. So the, the good comparator of this throughout the whole time is what was happening uh, in Ireland, but also in Northern Ireland. So Northern Ireland, part of the UK, subject to lots of the same rules, um, fully nationalised, vertically integrated um, network. It saw the same rise, kind of percentage rises in ridership, in, in passenger usage that were being seen in GB. Um, and uh, yeah, that's it. So. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting to go. Deirdre's pointing out the effect of this was so stark when travelling by train in Ireland on New Year's Eve. We were able to spread out and have some comfort. Also, nice design carriages in terms of luggage, etc. Absolutely. So, I, I love there's some discussion going on about London water in the background here, which is interesting. I, I have no idea what the uh, what the uh, what the chaos is in the background. So, um, and that's not the end of it either. So, uh, also, we had to have contract managers, regulators, to sit on top of that. So you have a franchising authority, an economic regulator, and a safety regulator. Uh, actually, at that time, the safety regulator was within HMRI um, was and, and associated bodies, was within uh, the health and safety executive. But these three entities and uh, quite a few others 
um, also uh, were added to that pile of bits and pieces that formed the Prantas Railway. Um, and uh, so, you know, on top of so those little, little, our little pile of, uh, of, of regulators there, uh, because I've screwed up the animations on my, on my slide deck, obviously, uh, because I hammered through this because I was in a call until much later than I intended to be. Uh, that's fine, though, because I can do editing on the fly. So um, we went from British Rail, single entity. Yes, it had sectorization, but it, it very much was a single uh, powerful autonomous body, uh, autonomous entity. And then we disintegrated into all of this lot, all of these bits, all of these bits with a huge number of uh, different contractual arrangements between each other. You know, so, you know, all the you had train operating companies that would like have to do stuff to rail track. Uh, and they also had their relationship with the, with the franchising authority. They also had to rent trains from from one or probably all three of the of the the, the, the Roscoe's. Um, you had uh, they then had to interact with the ORR to be to be regulated. They also then had to deal with uh, HMRI to to prove their safety case. Um, uh, then obviously the relationship then from 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 these elements uh, out into actual central government as well. So uh, what a mess! Uh, just not good. Uh, yeah, Raphael Nic Nicolaus. Yeah, the economic regulator was the ORR. So the ORR's original remit now changed somewhat, but the original remit of the ORR was simply economic regulation. So making sure that they delivered to their financial promises, um, according to the director of passenger rail franchising, which was what the original franchising authority was uh, down here. A, a mess, a big bloody mess. Uh, by April, first of April, nineteen ninety-seven, all the franchises had been awarded. Um, uh, you know, we had a plethora of regulating organizing bodies, um, kind of stitching the system together. Privatization was essentially complete. Uh, we had our joyous spread of colors, um, uh, which I have to say, I don't like. I don't think having a million liveries is a good thing. I think it's a, a, a mess, but there we go. Um, it was done. Um, and most importantly, that the outgoing administration's goal of, of finishing this off, of scorching the earth before the next general election, had been achieved. They'd managed it. And despite promises to the contrary, uh, New Labour came into power and did nothing to reverse the process. Um, they kind of proposed that they, they would try and stitch it back together a bit as a, more of a controlled thing with this uh, heavily... Uh, late 90s, early 2000s logo um, strategic rail authority. But bear that in mind, because they did not succeed in creating it at that point. They they talked about it, they did not create it, because uh, things were happening. So only months after all the franchise had been awarded, uh, we had uh, an express train collide with a freight train at Southall in London. Uh, it killed seven people, they injured 139 others. Um, and a lack, you know, the, the, the cause of this... Um, was a lack of effective communication between the fragmented elements of the railway. So there wasn't enough discussion between signalers and between train operating uh, companies. That's the root cause of, of, of this uh, horrific crash. And it was the first of a series of, of fatal derailments, all of which were attributable to the new structure of the railways. Uh, other people can spin it any way they like, but all of these were attributable to the new structure of the railways. Um, in, uh, I should have said there's a, a bit of a content, content warning, but these are sufficiently far away pictures that I figured that they're not... Um, there's nothing too uh, unpleasant within them. Um, the, the the first so so yeah in October 1999 um, there was the you know so that was September 97. Jump forwards a couple of years to October 1999 and 31 people were killed um, at Labrooke Grove, which um, was as a result of, of of kind of regulatory issues that had been 
that had continued off the back of BR but had not been resolved and had been slowed down by prioritization, the process of prioritization, the, the fragmentation it caused, um, and um, and inadequate safety regulation. There was just inadequate safety regulation over the structure. Um, and by uh, a year, only a year later, Hatfield um, happened uh, in October 2000. You know, four people were killed, 70 injured. This sent shockwaves to the industry, particularly infrastructure side, because it had direct, di- resulted directly from the fact that Railtrack perceived itself, uh, there was a self-perception that it was a contract management organisation, not an engineering one. And, um, you know, it was like, no, no, we just manage contracts. There's nothing to do with this about you know, the, the consequences of what we do is, is not, we're just managing the contracts, um, which did not work, uh, hence why Hatfield happened. And, and this... As a result of the billions that had to be spent in desperately, you know, gargantuan and rushed effort to replace kind of thousands of miles of substandard track materials, well, actually not all of them substandard, um, billions of pounds were spent, and this basically binned rail track. Uh, it was absorbed into a new government body called Network Rail. Enter Network Rail. Hooray! Um, some positive progress in the right direction. Um, but, uh, so it's an interesting one. So, so Raphael Nicolaus, actually, the evidence is such that there was not an increase in the overall number of fatalities on the railway as a result of privatisation. To be fair, statistically, that isn't the case. But there was a there were several dr- very publicly dramatic, kind of visible, dramatic major rail crashes that resulted from the structure of the industry. And there's, I'm sure, there's all sorts of data analysis you can do that will that would pick up and uh, understand the difference between overall crashes happening in post BR how much of those were as a result of general improvements in safety that had kind of continued through BR era and, and perhaps were the consequence of BR improvements to safety through sectorization um compared with this elevation of big dramatic um publicly visible crashes and how much that also coincided with uh more news you know more rolling television news and so that increased the visibility as well i I think there's that picture is a little complex but there were several the the key thing that's worth remembering there were several significant publicly visible fatal derailments um that resulted directly from the structure of the the privatized industry so network rail were created but that didn't stop this tranche of fatal derailments unfortunately because uh in may 2002 Seven people were killed by um, uh, the negligence of a private maintenance company. One of those, um, one of those kind of hugely fragmented elements. Um, one of them, Jarvis, uh, who pro- who proceeded to desperately say it was sabotage um, over and over again, trying to get off the hook. Uh, Jarvis had um, not properly maintained a, a set of points. Uh, the uh, stretcher bars failed, and uh, a happy train, a three six five, derailed at speed uh, and. Uh, killed six people on the train and dropped some brickwork off a bridge down and killed someone underneath the bridge as well so um yeah really not good uh and again you know this this actually again attributable to a front maintenance company and this led to all of these infrastructure maintenance units and track renewal units being absorbed into network rail um so yeah not all but most maintenance tasks were returned in-house to network rail um and by this point, so so kind of by the time this reconstitution of, of rail track as network rail had concluded in, in kind of October 2002, Britain's rail infrastructure had been de facto renationalized. And that's not specifically, an, uh, it's not exactly true, but it, essentially network rail had been renationalized. Um, 
And in 2013, actually, this ended up becoming official because Network Rail was brought onto the Treasury books. So officially, 2013, renationalisation of the of the of the infrastructure. But but it, it de facto happened in 2002. So, um, oh, actually, there's a thing. Uh, oh, I don't want to roll with me scroll scroll wheel. I'll come down here and have a look at some stuff. So, uh, oh, I can have a little 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 breather and a, a sip of tea. Is this making sense? Is, is is the yarn weaving itself sufficiently? You can sort of see you can sort of see the direction things are going, right? Um. Oh, so overall passenger and worker safety had continued to improve through the early years of privatization. Um, but these and other kind of these crashes and, and some of the other some other highly highly public tragedies exposed kind of systematic failures in in the fragmented structure of the industry. Lynn Baxter might be able to add add add, add things to this. It, it, look up some of Lynn's writings on the subject. Um, definitely do. And also the video that she did with David Turner on this is really good. Um, the um, structure of the industry um, that as it had been drawn up by Treasury had resulted in some of the you know the, these systemic failures were as a result of that structure. Um, and if the first five years following completion of privatization would be about exposing those failures, the next 15 years would be about unpicking that structure pretty much in its entirety. Um, so uh, we jump forward to February 2001, um, or kind of rather we jump back a bit. So we were talking about October 2002 when Network Rail was kind of fully uh, created. But let's jump back a little actually to February 2001 because the Strategic Rail Authority was created. Um and uh, it absorbed the office of, of passenger rail franchising, um, and it aimed to to take a kind of a complete view of the rail network and its development. Uh, and a keystone in this was the modernisation of the West Coast Main Line. Here it is. Um, we have to talk a little bit about the West Coast Main Line. Uh, we've talked, in fact, we have on Rail Natter talked um, uh, talked quite a bit on um, uh, on on, uh, on the West Coast Main Line and, and kind of what it meant to um, what it meant to to the rail network, the British rail network, um, it had long been considered the jewel in the crown of the of, of the the UK's uh, the kind of England and Scotland's uh, rail network. Certainly, um, it had been electrified and modernised through the fifties, sixties, and seventies. And, and prior to the early nineties recession, BR had been developing um, plans for significant upgrades to the route uh, alongside a new fleet of trains. Damn it! I missed the opportunity to put in the the Intercity two fifty here, didn't I? Ah, oh, what a failure! Anyway, uh, that picture will be going on Twitter later. But you um. All of you have seen that picture anyway, because when I go run around the museum, I invariably go and find the model that has that livery on it. The Institute, Institute 250 was part of the plans, um, uh, kind of after the failure of APT, see previous episodes, uh, Institute 250 was the proposed replacement. And um, that kind of fell to one side as a result of the of the recession. Um, it didn't so much kill the plans off, but it essentially put them into deep freeze. They were picked up again, really, by, by Richard Branson's Virgin. Uh, so when Virgin Trains appeared... Uh, post privatization they wanted to introduce new tilting trains they wanted a much more frequent timetable all the things that in city 250 project was supposed to deliver um and what started in 1998 is a promise for 140 mile an hour railway with full digital signaling so so you know a, a a radical you know promises massive promises of what an upgrade to the existing railway could achieve this should be familiar everyone um by the early 2000s, um, this had descended into chaos. And th this was actually contributed to rail tracks demise as well. It wasn't just the safety issues. So, so for example, in 1998, the plan was that this would cost about $2.5 billion. And in 2002, it was costing, in 2002 prices, £14.5 billion. Uh, that's £25 billion in today's money. That's a lot of money. 
Uh, and indeed, when I gave my evidence to the um, Transport Select Committee on the Integrated Rail Plan, this example is the one I pointed out, saying, uh, folks, uh, yeah, 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 this, the IRP, it's going to be a disaster again. We've done this before. Anyway, um, and indeed, how much of a calamity the West Coast route uh, modernization was uh, led, you know, within, I think it was about a year and a half or two years, all of the additional capacity, all of it was absorbed. So every new seat that had been created was pretty much filled up. And as a result of that, Network Rail indeed um, kind of, uh, and, and we'll come back to why this this report came out, but um, for various reasons, by 2007, Network Rail had published a new report talking about the need for new railway lines uh, to meet capacity challenges, particularly on the West Coast Main Line, but elsewhere as well. Uh, um, and indeed, government was behind the scenes commissioning other bodies to look at, uh, you know, um, uh, Andrew McNaughton was looking at uh, high-speed lines as well. But more on that momentarily. Let's return to 2005. Um, so, West Coast route modernization had hopelessly extended costs, its costs. Um, and uh, so the, strategic, the Strategic Rail Authority was tasked with bringing the, the massive project into line. But by 2002, costs had risen, as we talked about. The scope of the project had already been severely curtailed, you know, back to 125 miles an hour tilt only. Um, digital signaling had gone pretty much entirely out the window. Um, and any benefits the upgrades had afforded were pretty much absorbed immediately. Um, and indeed, in, yeah, so I was, I was talking about the, the New Lines program. Um, pretty much before the, the, the main works complete in 2007. This report came out in, sorry, main works concluded in 2008. This report came out in 2000, or kind of began, the work for it began in 2007. So even before the works had been completed fully, it was it became clear that it was not enough and that a new high-speed line was required anyway. Um, hence, HS2 appeared. But um, we'll get to that. And yes, uh, we know that the Integrated Rail Plan has kind of somewhat unlearned this lesson. So it, it may not have been perfect, but the Strategic Rail Authority had kind of provided the rail industry with some level of, of long-term vision, uh, considerable considerable kind of organizational funding on autonomy guess who didn't like this um yeah they were slow off the mark for sure um because of rail tracks demise but they had started successfully awarding they'd awarded what two or or three or maybe not in that they'd started the process of awarding their 20-year franchises so they'd, they'd thought ah, if we do a 20-year franchise it, it can it can work better we can actually have some long-term investment uh chiltern style in, in the infrastructure as well and 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 think of the railway a bit more as a system uh, however, this combination of long-termism and, and the decentralised autonomy was an anathema not just to Treasury, but also it kind of ran against the continued new labour pushes for centralisation, which meant there was a battle, a battle to be had. And funnily enough, if you go up against Treasury, the chances are you will lose. And indeed, um, the Railways Act 2005 abolished the Strategic Rail Authority. So uh, in 2005, Strategic Rail Authority, gone. That meant that franchising and long-term strategy development went to DFT. The Department for Transport got it. So less than a decade after privatisation had completed, the railways were under greater government control than at any time before in their history. So not only had privatisation disintegrated and failed on its own merits, but it actually resulted in government, central government, getting more power over the railways than ever before in history. Not good. Anyway... Uh, nevertheless, by this point, you know, it was actually good. There was some good stuff going on. You know, the tide had turned on the railways. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, so, you know, railways were by far the most popular since the early part of, of, the, of the, the, the 20th century. Passion numbers were enormous. There was cross-party consensus that um, the rail investment and the expansion of the, the rail network were a good thing. 
franchises previously let as not for growth, uh, such as those in, in Wales and, and the North, were kind of creaking at the seams as people were turning to trains. You know, suburban uh, demand was enormous on, on both of those uh, franchises. Uh, the demise of steel and coal traffic, kind of notwithstanding, rail freight was also booming. So you had this enormous f- boom in, in, in rail freight as well. Um, so let's jump forwards to 2007. Tony Blair, that guy, um, his government published another white paper called Delivering a Sustainable Railway. This is a bit of a weird paper because this essentially vetoed further electrification on the network and it instead suggested that biodiesel was the path to a clean railway. Um, within a few months of this getting published, Blair was gone, Brown had arrived, and uh, Gordon Brown had appointed this chap. Um, slightly weird Blair obsessive uh, nowadays is a little bit lost the plot but that's fine. At the time, probably a pretty good... In fact, not probably. He was a pretty good Secretary of State for Transport. Um, he was appointed as Secretary of State for Transport by Gordon Brown. Not only did Adonis um, push for uh, new strategic electrification, but he also initiated the development of High Speed 2. So he got Andrew McNaughton in, he initiated High Speed 2, he got Network Rail, kind of supporting Network Rail in their development of, of, of the need for new lines. Uh, so weirdly, you know, Gordon Brown very much flipped the Blair administration's agnosticism towards enhance, enhancing and expanding the railway network because I'm afraid Blair's attitude to the railways was um, uh, at best. So, we, uh, yeah, let's see. There, there, This isn't the end of the story, though. We have some issues going on here because around about this time and, and kind of getting worse and worse, now that the Department for Transport had full control over um, over franchising, uh, and, and and franchise agreements and all of this stuff, um, the, the 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 and 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 the fact that capacity was becoming more limited, and so the need to direct and be precise over what provision was need was required, was growing enormous. You know, the, so these you know from what have been quite short documents of the original franchise agreements, those contracts were now you know even the kind of the 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 invitations to to tender documents were files that are huge huge piles and piles of files, uh, they're growing more complex, more restrictive. And that meant the numbers of bidders reduced. And indeed, the ambition of their bids, in order that the few that were left could win them, became uh, increasingly unrealistic. And this reached ahead in... Oh, yeah, that's that's right, the, the, the new lines. This reached ahead in 2009, when uh, National Express East Coast was stripped of the East Coast franchise after failing to meet its ridiculously unrealistic payment targets. Uh, despite the fact that growth, passenger growth was enormous, they had just bid... They 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 had won the bid on the off the back of just insanely unrealistic... Um, uh, targets for paying money back to the DFT um, and that was kind of the first domino to fall really in the franchise system um, so it's a major not so much a canary in the coal mine as uh, much of the coal mine collapsing in on itself so that was 2009 jump forwards to uh, oh yeah obviously that then became East Coast as we all know uh, 2012 you know things were not getting better 2012 uh, the West Coast franchise bidding process was scrapped by government it was awarded as, a, as essentially a short-term concession pending a review um and amid a wider crisis across the industry oh, sorry I, I kind of jumped on that sorry east coast was formed as um as a essentially a nationalized operator um so uh, that that east coast operation uh, was was essentially a, a public publicly owned and operated um uh kind of uh, passenger service um, sorry so 2012 West Coast mainline franchise competition was cancelled um, there was kind of a uh, yeah the, the, the short term concession pending review um, which uh, yeah hmm. and 
indeed, kind of as we'll get to in June 2018, um, the, the the East Coast franchise, which had been awarded again, fell in itself. But we will jump forward to that momentarily. Um, oh, Peter's saying, what about Connex? Oh, yeah, Connex went under or restricted rights due to the service. Oh, yeah, nice. Thank you. Um, very good point. So, 2016. We need to talk about 2016 um, and what had really started happening uh, in terms of strikes. Why were the 2016 strikes happening? Well, there's a complex range of things going on. So, the bids that we've talked about, you know, these 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 increasingly overambitious bids, kind of combined with the ever more complex and controlling contracts from DFT, kind of only left one lever open to the train operators to cut costs, and that was staffing. One big lever on it, and it said staff numbers, and you could just kind of wangle that lever about. That was all that was left to the to the bidders. That was the only lever they had. And remember that the whole, generally, the whole point of train operating companies is to negotiate worse terms with its staff to reduce costs. That's the only thing, that's really the only point of them. And that's kind of a really key thing to understand about the way that these, this sort of, you know, the prioritization of public services is about driving down working conditions, making working conditions worse in order to pay staff less, in order to have fewer staff, because that's how you bring costs down. It's essentially, you're essentially outsourcing the the negotiation of those public services, because invariably the, the taxpayer is the one still paying for the services. It's just that you're outsourcing to a private company and paying that private company some money in order to reduce working conditions, Mm, which is not a great idea, really, Um, because then you get to the point where a a public service run on goodwill um, and it's only run on goodwill and and all it's run on is goodwill. And those people decide to withdraw their goodwill. The public service ceases to function, which, um, spoiler alert, we're getting there. Anyway, so... um, that, that staffing leave was all there was. So from 2016 onwards, this kind of wave of increasingly disruptive strikes took hold of the network. Enormous amount of disruption from strikes because terms and conditions were being altered to attempt to reduce the number of staff the train operating companies had to have on their books, um, whether it was you know driver-only operation or whether it was just getting rid of guards altogether or whether it was shifting the responsibility between different train staff, um, altering rosters, all this stuff, because the only lever that was there was the staffing lever. Um and uh, and so just as the the kind of the industry's new structure um, back in '93 had had resulted in the creation of the Roscoes, which incentivized a freeze in new train procurement. Yeah, we have to think a bit about rail track actually. Um, so yeah, just just as the Roscoes had kind of incentivized that that freeze in new train procurement, um, the creation of rail track and its private suppliers had done a similar thing to recruitment for infrastructure. Um, you know, right the way across the infrastructure domain, there's a big gap in there's, there's almost a generational gap in terms of infrastructure engineers. You've got the this, this surge of kind of people, sort of five years before I joined the industry, of, of kind of a surge of, oh shit, we need a bigger railway, we need to employ some people. But there's a big gap before that, and with that gap came a, a big shedding of knowledge. That knowledge was shed in the form of literal knowledge being put into skips by the the, the private companies. Uh, they were like, oh, we don't need all this asset knowledge. Let's just put it in the bin. Um, bonkers um but also in all, all the staff who who either sacked it in because the, of, of br coming to a close they're like oh, i'll take my pension and leave or the various kind of restructurings that meant people were left and, you sh- and were shed or the fact these companies just reduced their headcount generally or the fact they were seen as contract management organizations so didn't employ proper engineering kind of staff anyway so all of this um a good question being asked by remy cardona about um uh, train maintenance uh it, we, it, it does fit into the picture, but it doesn't kind of fit. It, it, it doesn't necessarily. 
it kind of sits within the narrative, but I, I kind of skipped over it a bit. But yeah, th that does fit into the picture as well. The maintenance of trains certainly is a, a complicated picture. Um, but anyway, so yeah, fair point. We'll, we'll get to, we'll do a bit of a Q&A when I reach the kind of a, a bit of a dramatic moment soon. And we'll, we'll do some q &A. In fact, we'll do a Q&A at the end. So scoop up and store all your questions, folks. Anyway, so sorry, I digress. We've got this big gap in recruitment. A skills, this, this kind of... Um, if you like, a, a, a decade-wide gap in, in skills uh, as a consequence of this. And, and with that growth in passenger demand um, came a huge growth in the number of infrastructure projects being procured, being carried out. And that skills bottleneck combined with an industry structure um, kind of outside of this as well. So, so the relationship with, with like uh, kind of uh, some of the big contractors, contractors... Uh, and, uh, and and also to an extent uh, having less in-house knowledge of the consultancies as well consultancies um, and, and, and there's loads of these so plus 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 lots of them and they all have relationships with each other that make no sense and, and relationships back and forth and scribble 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 the point of that is that it's a mess um, this sort of all of this industry structure exacerbating costs by by essentially maximizing the number of organizational interfaces and for the bigger industry as well so all the complexity of train operating companies freight operating companies etc uh, none of them can benefit off each off each other it's all lots of contractual boundaries and um, all those organizational interfaces meant that work was being carried out uh, you know, it's being delivered too slowly and at too high a, a cost, you know, too far too high a price. And by 2017, uh, these cost escalations had become kind of unbearable for government. So not only did this result in, as we all know, painfully, the um, the curtailment of the National Electrification Programme, but also in the abandonment of lots of other enhancements across the country, particularly in Manchester and, and across the north of England. Uh, meanwhile, we had this glut of new train orders from, a, from a, a train manufacturing sector that had kind of only invented itself fairly recently and, and, and was bottlenecking through Derby and Newton Aycliffe. So, and also borrowing new, new suppliers who didn't know what they were doing, really know what they were doing from Europe, and they had to learn the process a lot. So we had a situation where we had, um, you know, also the, the new train orders were, by the way, for new electric trains for which there were no longer overhead wires being planned to actually power them. So... Let us jump to May 2018, the dark day. Oof. So, I love that people are still talking about water, which is bonkers. Um, so, yeah, May 2018. This is supposed to be a moment where we were going to have this in, an enormous leap in capacity created. You know, we we're going to have loads of electrification, capacity release, uh, you know, new capacity projects happening. So, you know, essentially we we're supposed to have new track, new trains, and, and as a result of that, we'd get an, a, a, a kind of a, a great leap in the number of trains running in the timetable. Um, as it happened, as we've just discussed, neither the track nor the trains were in place to deliver much of this uplift. You know, trains were being were way behind schedule on delivery or couldn't move because there were no wires. Um, capacity uplift projects have been cancelled. Uh, you know, capacity enhancement projects have been cancelled. The result of that was a collapse in the reliability of the system and a, a total failure of the of the timetable. You know, driver training couldn't happen. A lack of trains tracks staff result in the cancellation of, of like over a third of services in the southeast and north of England. Um, there were significant effects across the whole network. Um, the whole franchise system at this point was massively under duress. You know, hugely under duress of everyone going, the system doesn't fucking work. What the hell are you going to do about it, government? Um and, you know, it was bad enough that the ORR actually did their own independent inquiry, which is a bit of a, you know, milquetoast sort of document. But it kind of attempted to capture all the problems. Um, you know, huge, just a, a complete breakdown in the way the railway system worked. Um, 
and uh, of course, then as we talked about earlier, jumped to kind of uh, kind of a month or two forwards, you know, or barely that, just off the back of this collapse in the timetable, Virgin Trains East Coast went pop um, because of their own uh, over optimistic bids. Um, and that had to be returned to kind of nominal state operation under LNER. Uh, it's not quite as state operated as, as we as, as I'd like it to be, but it is essentially a state operation. Um, by this point, franchise bidders were few and far between. They were getting even more unhappy because they were getting shouted at by government when it was mostly out of the control of the train. The train operating companies don't own any trains. They don't own any track. They have influence over neither of them. And at that point, they were like, we can't train, train our drivers because we haven't got any track and trains. We're being shouted at for not delivering a timetable that we haven't got the tools to deliver either track or trains. This isn't fair. We're not interested. And the number of bidders essentially evaporated. It dried up. No one was interested. Hardly anyone interested. Um, system really was absolutely creaking and close to collapse at this point. Hence the Williams Review. Uh, so the Williams Rail Review was it was initiated later that year in 2018, um, and um, yeah, this 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 kind of the whole debacle had been kind of topped off by actually it's, it's worth there's a bit of context the the whole debacle the collapse of Virgin Trains East Coast um, kind of topped the whole debacle off and Chris Grayling much as we are not necessarily fans of Chris Grayling he had never been a fan of the franchise system in fact he'd been a, a kind of a vocal opponent of the franchise system and. Uh, of the lack of integration between track and train so as Secretary of State for Transport he initiated the Williams Rail Review in 2018 um, it was to kind of work out what shape the industry needed to be in to enable growth without kind of cycling right back to calamity again hmm. foreshadowing um, the review took a lot of time to pick up speed and very much left the industry in, in kind of perpetual crisis mode yeah um, then this happened uh, and as you know from the fact that Rail Natter literally came out of the existence of the of COVID, we saw um, a collapse in ridership and a consequent leap in kind of percentage subsidy. Right, a bit like what happened off the back of the nineties, uh, the, the the early nineties recession, a dramatic rise in um, operating subsidy, and as a result of that, government panicking again and and ripping up this kind of cross party consensus that more rail is good. Um, so yeah, but kind of uh, ridership was reduced to five percent of pre-COVID levels. Industry was very much put on life support, you know, rightly so. Uh, by the end of that month, all of the franchises were transferred onto emergency concessions, and that was it. Franchise system gone. This was made official in, in September 2020. Uh, oh, I should have done a little card for this. Never mind. Um, I should, definitely should have done a slide for it. As the government stated that franchising was to cease to exist. That was it. And by April 2021, the National Audit Office had said that train operators were to be officially classified as state-owned, despite the continued involvement of private companies. Pointless involvement of private companies. I should have I should have pointless in brackets because all they're doing is is taking 1.5% to question mark. Anyway, um, finally in May 2021, the Williams Shapps plan for rail was published. Oh, surely some progress. We're going to see things happening, right? Uh, setting out a, a loose and admittedly loose, and we've covered this. We're, we're in rail matter territory now. We've covered this. We've, we've reached the, the, the almost present day. Setting out a loose view of the future structure of the railways. Uh, it very much lacked in detail as we covered, but the headline was that a new organization called GBR, Great British Railways, was to be created. Um, a, a transition team was established to understand what GBR would do, how it would be structured. Um, worth noting, though, that the Roscoe's, as the last major vestige, major, uh, vestige of, the, of the Railways Act 1993, remained untouched. Hmm, yes. So, 
It's not the end of the story, though, is it? Because despite the fact that ridership has recovered to, to pretty much between 90 and 100% of pre-COVID levels, and yes, you know, trends away from the traditional commute have been accelerated, um, but London rail travel is still climbing. You know, we are still seeing ridership climbing. On most inner-city services and across regional networks, kind of ridership, as we know, is well above pre-COVID levels. But an indecisive government, which we know is now locked off, uh, kind of completely locked itself into a room in perpetual crisis, means that the William Shatt's plan has all but been scrapped. It's pretty much gone. Uh, I think that it's going to be, you know, we, we saw that stupid competition about the headquarters being swept under the table. Uh, we've seen the fact that this is just being, that Treasury never wanted the, the big autonomy shift to happen anyway. Just as with the levelling up white paper, this has just been binned, essentially. It's been got rid of. Um, and, uh, yeah, so several operators still running a 60% timetable despite high passenger numbers, crowding worse than ever before. Uh, Network Rail has been forced by Treasury to cut, you know, thousands of jobs. Pressures are also being put on train operators to reduce headcounts. That stasis that we saw from back in 2018, May 2018 has yet to be alleviated. Nothing, no changes to the industry structure have happened. Nothing at all. So, you know, the impact on passengers, rail freight users in industry, uh, you know, the workforce of the industry cannot be overstated. This deadlock, you know, nothing has changed. I, I keep pointing out, we had that big crisis in May 2018. Nothing has changed since. So, of course, everything's still in crisis mode. Um and yeah, and there we go. So at that point, what the hell is next? You know, <laughs> you know, we've got this stasis and we've covered this in RailNet. All you good folks, uh, RailNet to watch is we know that there are um, that that there has to be a next step. And there and, and actually all all the clever people, all the people actually know what they're talking about, know what that next step should be. It's it's about the fact that we need, you know, we've, we've in fact, I, I can read out the kind of kind of nobly read out what I've got at the end of my piece because it it kind of summarises the whole picture right, which is you know, transport represents the UK's largest source of greenhouse gas emissions. The cost of living crisis is pitting, is is hitting people incredibly hard. So there's there's never been a more important time for the rail industry to step up and move more people and more things around the country. You know, eighty nine percent of of UK journeys are, are by road and only nine percent are by rail, which means that even with kind of that overall reduction in the number of of miles moved, rail still needs to absorb. A significant modal shift, you know, and a ten percent modal shift from road to rail requires a one hundred percent increase in rail's modal share. You know, a doubling of the number of trains in simple terms um, compared to today, uh, or rather compared to pre-COVID, frankly. Uh, and also at the same time, the costs of motoring are increasing for individuals and businesses. So the railway, um, you know, can and should be providing an affordable and efficient alternative. You know, alongside integrated buses and, and other public transport. And to accommodate these shifts, the railway needs to be empowered to take on a structure that enables it to achieve its ultimate outcomes and works best for its users. Those outcomes need to be set by government, but you have to have a level of empowerment of the railway industry to, to actually achieve those uh, those outcomes. Uh, for me, as we talked about in RailNet, democratic accountability at, at, at kind of local and regional levels is absolutely key to unlocking the cycle of proposed and cancelled investment. Um but more on that momentarily. Uh, it's time to answer some questions. I'm going to go big face uh, very briefly. Hello, everyone. That was a bit of a mouthful, wasn't it? Golly. And I'm, I'm seven minutes over uh, episode time. Sorry about that. Oh, I'm running back through the questions. Here we are. Uh, watch government try and franchise that LNER before the election out of pure spite. Yeah, quite possibly. Yeah, the system's not fixed. It's it's just worse than it ever was. Um, uh, yes. Oh, 
So, much like with energy, Britain risks becoming a country where transport is expensive because of daft past decisions. Absolutely. You know, energy prices are enormous in Britain, uniquely enormous in Britain, because of all the stupidity of the privatisation of the, of the energy system. Um, yeah. And, uh, oh golly, what a mess. Okay, Chuck, Chuck questions for me. I'll, I'll close out, and then, um, and then we'll do questions before the end, as, as, as is traditional. So let me miniaturise my face. Um, remember to add me in for questions so I can spot them. Uh, yes, so we want that democratic accountability, kind of at local regional levels, um, to kind of unlock that cycle of proposed and then cancelled, and then proposed and then cancelled investment, and, and in order to kind of push operators to do better. Democratic accountability, what do I mean by that? Um, well, in the aftermath of May 2018 timetable meltdown, and indeed in the recent repeating of the same mistakes, it's the likes of, of kind of the Rail North Committee within TFN and other subnational transport bodies that are actually holding the industry's feet to the fire over the poor services. It's not Westminster. Transport Select Committees can only the, the Transport Select Committee can only do so much. The reality is that the, the accountability is, is happening through those local passenger bodies, whether it's the Rail North Committee or others, or whether it's councils or, or, or and so on. So that means that the devolution of decision and funding powers needs to happen both to the regions and the cities, but also to industry itself so that it can respond quickly to these demands. And um, we live in a pretty changeable kind of society. And, and contrary to what people might tell you, um, pu the public sector is much more responsive than the private sector. The private sector is very risk averse. It wants to do the same thing over and over again so that it just makes the most money and, and gives dividends to its shareholders. Whereas the public sector, as we saw through COVID, can at a turn of a heel respond to a crisis it can go right okay uh we can subsidize the you know we can have a rail industry that's now j just delivering to, prioritizing delivery for key workers moving key workers around getting pp about moving freight about they can do that at the turn of a heel you know at the turn of a heel compared to a private in, uh, uh, industry which just could not do that um so this is this is a really key thing to grasp and understand is the is is that if we want a responsive industry the, only the public sector can deliver that that responsiveness. Um, so, my view is that we have to have an empowerment of the rail industry as a self-governing body that is accountable chiefly to the re the UK's regions and cities, not to central government and treasury. That's a critical step. That that's the empower the rail industry, make it accountable to local and regional democracy, not to central government. That's the only way we're going to kick things out of crisis mode and, and kind of reshape the industry to be fit for the long-term future. Oh, them's me views. Whew. That was a bit of a, a, a roaring, rip-roaring um, yarn, but hopefully, uh, yeah, let me know. Questions. Uh, do tell me what you think and, 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 and what your thoughts are and, and whether you see how that kind of, hopefully that shows how everything is connected. All those decisions that were made as part of the Railways Act 1993 have led us straight to the, what we're, the, the mess we're in now was an inevitability. It's not a, a, an unhappy consequence or an unhappy side effect. It was an inevitability of the structure that was created for the Railways Act 1993 by the Adam Smith Institute and Treasury. It was them what did it. So let me remove my face and jump us to the, the usual outro and then I'll pick up questions for the end part. Um, everyone, thanks for listening. Uh, this podcast will be available hopefully not too long after it goes out now um, in audio only format um, on all good podcasting platforms particularly with the need for me to do quite a few pre-records for baby reasons um, all of your support at Patreon is 
very much appreciate to keep these happening. Times are tight, so the fact that lots of you are still uh, subscribing on Patreon is, is incredibly appreciated. It, it really does allow me to do more of this. And there are always plans afoot. But there are some interesting little uh, plans afoot that, that we'll maybe talk about um, in a couple of episodes of time. Patreon.com slash Gareth Dennis for that. Uh, PayPal.me slash Gareth Dennis. As lots of you do, you're lovely who do, chucking a, a penny. Some of you gave me Christmas presents through PayPal that I only noticed when I did my self-assessment. Um, actually, those are gifts that I didn't need to uh, uh, didn't need to declare for tax reasons, but I kind of did anyway because it kind of does sort of feel like income. But anyway, so the PayPal money that you send me um, uh, is very much appreciated. PayPal.me slash Gareth Dennis. And of course, the chat. Everyone in the chat here. GarethDennis.co.uk slash Discord is where, the, is where the YouTube chat continues. And my goodness, there is so much of it. And it's marvellous. Um, everyone in the chat, you've been wonderful. Um, Lynn, I hope that did justice to, to, to the story um, and, and made sense and kind of weaved the yarn together. As you pointed out, yeah, you've not your writings aren't quite out yet, but the, the, the discussion with Dr. David Turner is, is well worth it. Look up Lynn Baxter, um, see where, where Lynn's popped up. Actually, Lynn, we should have you on, shouldn't we, really? In fact, maybe we should have you on as, as part of this 1993 celebratory year. Um, yes, uh, I will message you about that. That's a, that's a good idea. So, uh, uk slash Discord uh, for the Discord. Next week, episode 149 which is technically the 150th episode, right? Um, light Rail does not exist, and other not-a-metro fun. Yeah, we're going to have to look at Light Rail and the fact that it just simply does not exist. It's nonsense. It's a nonsense phrase. It's meaningless. Uh, I've made the Germans very angry about this because they're like, what are you on about? Um, all, of the, all, all of our stupidly named systems that we have in the Germanosphere um, make sense. No, they don't make sense. Uh, the not-a-retro sorter continues to be right. Uh, it's yet to be unproven reigning champion, so on. That's going to be fun next week. Uh, I'll try and um, do some sketches to explain some points, but it'll be a bit of a discussion point. Again, collect up your edge cases to throw at me, and we're going to be testing the Not-A-Metro Sorter again, but with some particular examples off the back of the Light Rail Doesn't Exist um, discourse that happened uh, what, a couple of weeks ago now. Oh, everyone, let's get back to, back to my big pink face. Uh, Michael C. DLR, am I a joke to you? Yes, the Docklands Light Railway is wrongly named. It's not a light railway. It never was. It's a stupid name. But that's for next week. <laughs> uh, uh, yes, uh, you're very welcome, Chris Bird. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm glad it was an interesting run through the problems. Oh, yes, it's Stadtbahn fight time. Arian Burns. Oh, also, Arian, very good to have you. We we should chat. We, we, we need to do an episode. Um, I was chatting to John Worth after last week's episode. We, we should have a chat um, to do an episode about that that that'll be fun anyway lots of exciting episode ideas uh bouncing around um nothing more dull than arguing semantics with fellow transport nerds yeah but it's the best kind of dull isn't it let's face it uh, and it but as with all rail matter stuff there's a reason for it which is that there's a reason why calling stuff light rail is unhelpful and and doesn't help either our policy causes or or, or kind of understanding what tra the point of transport is so as in true rail matter style we're trying to break out of that that nerdocratic technocratic discussion of oh well light rail does exist because there's a law that says light rail yeah but that law means nothing it means nothing technically it means nothing for what pass what it delivers for passengers or, or municipal freight um light rail doesn't exist anyway that's for next week <laughs> the questions so i've seen some ats up here um let's have a look rafael nicolaus uh, when will we see the system that is needed if at all not anytime soon because I'm not under the impression that Labour are going to introduce the right shape of system. They're not going to, you know, the, the, the new Britain paper potentially looks at 
looking at treasury power, but unless treasury treasury is tackled absolutely head on, none of this works. You have to abolish the treasury first. Um, so, uh, Tom, we need to lock long-term planning and funding into the system. Too much government work is hamstrung by ministers promising money for headlines, then forgetting about it when convenient. Absolutely. This is why you have to spin out uh, you, the, the, you spin out the control. So, so the funding is locked in to the to the to the railways and ideally locked into devolved authorities for them to spend not treasury and that will help tremendously because local and regional you know city and regional authorities have a much better understanding of how transport has to be cross-party has to be long-term uh, central government does not um uh let's see what do i think of a german style pso tendering system could this be a model for the future i don't think britain's railway network has enough capacity to enable that sort of a uh well I yeah I, I just think that it, I just see the tendering process being pointless. I don't see the need for any private involvement. Like it just you're paying for a load of additional lawyers and contract management people within central government that don't need to be there if you just have a a, a public operated um, organization that's that's part that's essentially you know uh, autonomous its own body you know British Rail. But um, and it should be British Rail, by the way. That should be the name of the the, the entity. Should be called British Rail. Um, but it's accountable to to regional and local authorities. That's that's the critical thing. Um, uh, let's see. So private market, not so much about sustainability and long term uh, benefits, rather than about short term profits. Absolutely, it's about annual profits. Hence, why it's uh, no good. Uh, Gareth, Gareth, uh, question from earlier: Was there a reason Labour government spun Brell out in nineteen sixty nine? That was off the back of the um, the the changes that were happening uh, related to off the off the Barbara Castle. It's the nineteen sixty eight Transport Act, I think, that resulted in the, the formation of Brella. And there was a general feeling of restructuring it to be like a corporate entity with with kind of arm's length bodies. Um, yeah, uh, it's kind of continuing that thrust of corporatism of, of corporatocracy. No. What's the word I'm looking for? Generally, turning public bodies into private-looking companies. Um, uh, that was kind of the thrust of the '60s onwards, really. Um, doo -doo 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 -doo. Let's see what else we got. Um, thanks, David's uh, Jack Elliot. Is the desired model basically just everyone gets uh, a TFX? <laughs> um, uh, pass. Graham Harris. When is baby due? Uh, very, very soon. Mid Feb. Very, very soon. Uh, let's see, uh, Raphael. I've got the feeling that Britain's railways and privatisation, especially in that system, reverted back to whatever pre-grouping was. Uh, a bit, yeah, sort of. Corporatoc cor corporato corporatocracy. That's the one. Thanks, Richard Smith. I need to say that more because it's a word I'm going to be using in the engineer plays through, uh, uh, series a bit. Um, spoiler alert. Uh, let's see. Da, da, da. Light rail would be a technical term. No, no, it's not even a technical term. It isn't anything. Um, oh, right. Stephen uh, Chaitow, despite missing out on uh, uh, reopen your railway, could Peaks and Dales come to transform East Midlands rail and modal shift? Uh, no, no, probably not. I don't. Uh, there is a missing. There is a bit of a missing link in terms of the rail network. There, I do think there is a missing link. But, but I, I think there are other. I think it comes back a little bit to our um, strategic needs. There's a, there's a there's a fun episode coming up where I've and I've pretty much finished the back end analysis for it. There's a fun episode coming up looking at what the rail network 
should have been structured as post-nationalization instead of following the stupid structure of the pre-grouping and the grouping railways, rather. Um, what we should have prioritized as our main lines. And I think that'll help pick, pick out some of those strategic gaps uh, where we maybe be able to, to kind of answer some of those thoughts. I think there's a, there's a, there's a, a missing link at the area where where kind of the the peaks and dales kind of route that that I know that Memrap are, are looking at, but I, I'm not a hundred percent convinced on the on the idea of it being a useful reopening. I think actually a strategic rail link, potentially a freight link, there might be more useful. Um, let's see what else. Uh, Labour is dominated now by West Streeting type guys. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. Let's see. Uh, Michael C. Could giving funding powers to local authorities potentially reduce likelihood of big cross local border projects like HS2? Um, potentially, but you still need those big pan kind of pan kind of overall kind of pan regional projects. They still need to happen, um, and those are by their very nature going to be big political footballs. But driving more, if you have the big, in theory, if you devolve a large chunk of the funding to the to the of the of transport budget to to local and regional authorities, if you've got the big strategic plan, they can deliver elements of the the high speed line. You know, they could decide they're going to do the Goldborn link because they know at least it's capacity for local services. You have some of that, and you end up with a kind of a combination of regional funding, central government funding. Um, but this is where British Rail would be the ones who potentially would look at the uh, working with DFT and looking at the connections to local buses. You end up creating the, the integrated long-term transport plan uh, and the map of what the network needs to look like. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, Richard Smith uh, is not clean on, uh, keen on the German system. Imposes an artificial split between long distances and local regional trains and makes it harder to travel medium distances. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. Uh, Xander Veach, uh, to what degree, in my opinion, should private industry be involved in the UK railway? How much work should be contracted out and how much in-house? My challenge would be um, come up with a good reason why it shouldn't be in-house. There might be some things that it's right that aren't in-house. I think train manufacturing, it makes sense that it would not be in-house. Um, but you do need the, the strategic, the in-house strategic rolling stock plan to then procure those trains. So I think there are some dotted lines that, that make sense. But um, my challenge would always be, right, What take a thing. Why shouldn't that thing be delivered in-house? Is there a good reason for it not to be delivered in-house? But my, my attitude is... It's more efficient for the thing to be done in house by default, invariably, um, or and challenge me to prove that it isn't. But that's my, my my kind of default, particularly for the stuff that was within the remit of railways at 1993. Um, you know, government should own those trains, uh, or rather, the, the the rolling stock entities and regional authorities should own those trains, and they they can then be operated by a train operator, which might well also be a part of a regional authority or local authority. Oh, so. I think that's that, really. Um, Jack Elliott is pointing out that train manufacturing does seem to be an increasingly small number of companies. To, to a greater or lesser extent, perhaps it's a good idea to have an incumbent kind of um, British rail manufacturer and then also but allow but have them bid on an equal term with like the likes of Stadler. Bearing in mind that Stadler, who are still very much a small entity, are delivering the best trains in, in, in the UK at the moment. So... Um, but I think that it should be the case that the private sector justifies why it needs to be present, given that there's all that shedding, to dividend shedding. It's like, OK, if you're going to justify all that money that very obviously isn't going straight back into public service, why? That, for me, feels like the starting point. Like, if it's in-house, that dividend shedding doesn't happen. You can be more uh, innovative, because I'm sorry, public sector is more innovative. Uh, you can be more uh, lean, you can be more responsive to crises, of which there are going to be more and more with public sector private sector needs to then go well in order to justify us paying dividend a dividend and and, and being a, a private company 
we pr we will provide this material benefit and, and none of them do at the moment so oh i think that's um feels like a, not a bad time to wave a, a farewell to everyone um that's gone on a bit longer than it should have, but that was the kind of the Q&A session at the end, which I think was worthwhile. I'm going to wave vigorously. Everyone, um, that was that was a real matter. I'll see you next week. <laughs> Cheerio!